around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment, leveraging digital twin technology to help solve the most complex of engineering challenges, our solutions include integrated applications and services built on an open platform, enabling digital workflows across engineering disciplines and distributed project teams from the office to the field. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Welcome to this latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor of New Civil Engineer and your host for today, where I'm joined by another Claire, Claire Rutowski, who is Chief Information Officer Champion with Bentley Systems. In this episode, Claire and I are going to be discussing the challenges facing construction companies such as workload and skills, and the role technology will play in addressing those issues, as well as getting Claire's insight into emerging trends from the sector and what those could mean for future business. As we've just come to the end of New Civil Engineers 50th anniversary celebrations, I'm going to be asking Claire to make some predictions about what the civil engineering construction sector could look like in another 50 years time. But before I introduce her, let me tell you a little bit about Claire so you understand why I'm looking forward to this conversation today and why I think you are going to enjoy it too. Claire joined Bentley Systems in 2016 as Chief Information Officer to lead the global IT organisation and to shape and deliver the technology agenda across Bentley's business. By collaborating with executive leadership, she has ensured that Bentley has leveraged the most advanced solutions to achieve the goals of the company and its users. Before joining Bentley, she was Chief Information Officer at MWH, responsible for delivering IT strategy, services and support for 7,000 engineering professionals globally. Claire was recently promoted to Senior Vice President and Chief Information Officer Champion. We'll explore a little more about what that means in a moment. But the key part of that is her work to represent engineering companies' needs back to Bentley, which is why I'm interested to hear her views on industry trends. Claire is a project management professional and has received numerous awards, most recently top 80 chief information officers you should know, and we're going to get to know her today. And she was named among 2022's top 10 most inspiring women leaders. So welcome to the Engineers Collective, Claire. Thanks, Claire. I'm very happy to be here. So let's start off by exploring your role. Tell me what a chief information officer champion does and how your career experience to date puts you in a good position to undertake that work. Well, the CIO champion role is a role that Bentley created to ensure the concerns of CIOs, particularly at architecture, engineering, and construction firms, are adequately represented back to Bentley so that we can make sure we're delivering a positive experience for our accounts. And having worked in the AEC industry for well, we'll just call it a long time. Uh, I have the experience and really understand what CIOs, CDOs, and CTOs need from a strategic partner. The CIO champion is also responsible for the reverse, assuring that Bentley provides CIOs with thought leadership, advice, and direction. There's a lot of pressure right now in the industry at large to do more with less, to advance digitally, to create new revenue streams, and firms are really looking to their technology leadership to provide them with answers. So we want to be able to give those people the information that they need. And I spend most of my time meeting with our accounts, going to conferences, and making sure that I understand the trends and the needs of the AEC industry. 
So you spend a lot of your time out meeting people and finding out what's going on. So Anda, what's the most interesting or unusual fact you've learned recently through your work? Well, you know, one of the things that's really interested me is that the AEC industry really used to be seen as slow to move, slow to change, resistant to change in some degrees. But what I've seen out there in the last couple of years is that there is a true hunger to do things differently. People have the appetite and are ready to go digital. They're ready to apply technology. They're embracing change and want to be at the forefront of that change. And that is very exciting. So more broadly, based on the conversations you have through your work, what do you see as the main challenges facing civil engineering firms right now? And are those pressures the same globally or do you see regional differences? Well, I think both. So there are some pressures that I think apply globally, including things like the talent gap. There just there just aren't enough engineers no matter where in the world you are. I think it's very difficult to to make sure that you're adequately staffed. Uh, so that, I think, is ubiquitous. Aging infrastructure is a problem. Economic uncertainty, certainly, no matter where you are in the world, the economic situation is is better or worse, but it's still varying shades of I don't know. Uh, climate change, of course, affects everybody. And I think there's a global desire to transition our energy off fossil fuels and onto more renewable and sustainable sources. But there are differences. So inflation is certainly more acute in certain areas of the world than it is in others. Water supply issues vary depending on where you are, right? In the Middle East and in Africa, it's a very, very, very high concern, whereas in other areas it might not be. Population migration is a big issue in Africa and Central Europe, and and population growth shows up in Africa and India as a major issue. And why do we care about population trends? Well, because, of course, that population needs roads and clean water and and sewage and energy and all of the things that infrastructure provides. And then I think when it comes to North America and Northern Europe, the issue is not new infrastructure, it's aging infrastructure. But in all cases, I think there's a heightened demand to create or repair infrastructure and there just aren't enough people to do the work. So what about infrastructure and construction clients? You must spend a lot of time looking at what their needs are and how those are evolving. What insight can you share with us around the challenges they face and how their expectations from the supply chain are changing? Ah, well, because there isn't enough demand, there isn't enough supply and there is a heightened demand for infrastructure and not enough people to do it. Uh, firms are definitely feeling the pinch. So asset owners expect everything faster. They need projects to run on time, on budget, every time, no surprises. There's a lot of pressure to do things less expensively. Uh, I think that clients think that because there's always more technology to apply, then therefore things should be less expensive mm-hmm. because you should be doing it faster and more efficiently. But that isn't always the case when you're providing richer, more advanced designs and deliverables with with a lot more data in it. So I think finding that balance is tricky. AEC firms are being asked to provide carbon cutting and consider sustainability in their designs. Uh, and knowing that construction resources are in high demand, and there's another skill gap there, designs are also changing to make things easier to build. And in some cases, using techniques like modular construction, offsite production, and so on. So I think with juggling all of these different challenges, which way to go 
which go way beyond the technical ones that most engineers normally focus on, it'd be quite easy to get bogged down and feel like everything's impossible to solve. If you're quite positive about it all and you see it as opportunities, can you tell me a bit more about that potential that you see? Yeah, you know, there. it would be easy to say, oh, doom and gloom. There are so many people, so much infrastructure that we need, not enough engineers to do it all, not enough construction people. Uh, but I think it's exciting. You know, last year, a group called AEC Advisors did a survey of several hundred AEC firms and found that their average backlog is 15 months. And I've actually anecdotally just spoken to firms myself uh, who related that they are for the first time turning down work. So too much backlog is, it's not a bad problem to have, right? Um, and we do have tools to improve efficiency and increase effectiveness. So that's exciting. And I think we're at a tipping point here, you know, implementing new tools and technology always used to have to be done on the back of a project. And what I mean by that is if you wanted to implement a new system or a new way of doing something, you had to find someone who was willing to pay for that investment because most AEC firms, at least on the engineering side and architecture, uh, were charging by time and materials, right? So there wasn't the money to invest in something new. And there's also the concern that if I'm charging time and materials, but I implement something that makes it more efficient and is going to enable me to charge less time next time, then I'm actually kind of racing to the bottom, if you will. I'm, I'm, I'm making myself make less money, which really makes no business sense whatsoever. Uh, but last year is the first time in the AEC advisor survey that lump sum or fixed fee jobs actually took over from time and materials as the more dominant way that firms are billing. And for me, that's super exciting because that means there's the incentive to do things faster, to work more efficiently, because you're getting paid the same no matter what. And the other thing that does is free up funding to invest in new ways of working and innovation to help continue to advance and solve some of these problems. So for me, it's a very exciting time. And I guess it helps give the client a bit more certainty about what their costs are going to be as well. Exactly, exactly. So the construction industry has always been viewed, rightly or wrongly, as a slower adopter of new technology and different ways of working. But how do you see the current pressures as an opportunity when it comes to investing in research and development, which has always been a challenge given the historically low margins and the race at the bottom that you mentioned there? Yeah, I, I, I think, as I mentioned before, you know, the, the tide is changing and, and you can kind of feel it. It's difficult to articulate, but I think we're seeing the evidence of it in the fixed fee versus time and materials billing. We're also seeing, uh, many firms moving from what might be early adopters to, to really moving up the change curve in terms of embracing new technology. And I know I personally see it just with how many accounts have have new roles instead of just, I say just, don't, no CIO should get offended by that. Instead of having chief information officers, we're also seeing the rise of chief technology officers, chief digital officers, chief innovation officers, and they are really focused on finding ways to apply technology to the business of engineering in order to do things better. So, so I do think it's time. You've brought this on quite nicely to the next bit of the next question I was going to ask, which is focused on skills. So if there aren't enough engineers and the way we're doing things is changing, are you seeing 
other types of skills coming in. You talked about the chief information officer, chief digital officer and things like that. What about lower down the chain? Are you seeing other skills coming into the sector? Absolutely. I think firms are still looking for engineers, but but they're also looking for other types of technical resources, such as data scientists, automation experts, and integration experts. Because one of the things that I think the industry is really trying to do is work together more as an ecosystem and so of, of suppliers. And so what that means is being able to knit together different products from different companies and get them to all talk to each other. No one provider has all of the answers, right? Now I'm, I'm from Bentley. I'd love to be able to say we don't, <laughs> we have all the answers, but we don't. And so we're focused on being an open platform. And I think integration between different technologies and different data stacks is really important. As we move more and more down the BIM road and into digital twins, uh, data scientists become important because we've got lots of disparate silos of information and having data scientists who can integrate that information and more importantly, glean insights out of it in terms of, oh, that valve needs a repair, that bridge has a crack, you know, and create maintenance alerts and things like that. Those are all really, really important, but, but we need data scientists, automation experts and integration experts in order to be able to do that. So do you think those kind of skills will be key to actually delivering projects more efficiently and more cost effectively in the future? I do. I do indeed. And, and I think, I think it, it's a challenge for engineering firms because it means that the AEC industry in, in many cases, in the cases we're just talking about is actually kind of competing with big tech. Mm. Now, lucky for the AEC industry, this is not a great year for big tech. So there's <laughs> lots of people available, but we are in competition in an area we never were before. So you were saying there that the broadening of skills that firms are looking for, that they're still going to need engineers, but getting those people interested in the sector to choose it's a career path is always challenging. Plus, when it comes to data science, you, you would normally be competing with big tech firms. Like you say, there is maybe more people out there looking for jobs at the moment. But how do you think the construction sector's uptake of technology will play an important part in ensuring we have enough people and continue to attract more people and have people with the right skills in the future as well? Yeah, you know, I, I think we have to make construction sexy again, right? It can't be all about a hammer and nails or, or, or a pneumatic drill, which is what I think a lot of people still think about. Obviously, that is not, that's one very small part of what construction is. And so I think we actually have to do a better job of advertising some of the cool things that construction's all about in terms of automation, in terms of the technology that people get to use, whether it's drones or or the amazing equipment that we have out there, the new the new materials. And we have to appeal to the mission of infrastructure, right? I think we have a generation coming up that is very mission and purpose focused. And what better mission is there than to provide shelter and clean water? So I think being able to do that is really important. And I think those are things we can do in the short term to help attract people to the sector. In the medium term, I think continuing to focus on mission and purpose is important, but we should also be looking at things like internships and apprenticeships to be able to expose people to what it's really all about, not what they might think it's about. And then long term, it's those investments in young, in young people through STEM, 
uh, grants and different things so that youngsters can see what engineering and construction is all about too. So I know Bentley does a lot of work with schools to try and engage with young people early on and open their eyes to the opportunities a career in civil engineering and the infrastructure sector can offer. Can you tell me a little bit about that work and how you personally get involved with that, please? Yeah, so Bentley has partnerships with universities from the United States to the Philippines, the United Kingdom, Australia, and everywhere in between. We provide software and training uh, for up-and-coming engineers for free. So we expose the students to the software to let them use it, let them learn it, let them see kind of how the technology works. Uh, and we sponsor internships as well. And to get to the very youngest, we're involved in uh, several different things, but one of them is Future Cities Forum, which is a global effort to promote infrastructure design and construction to primary and middle school children. So uh, that would be like ages eight to to 13 or 14. Uh, and and I, I have been to one of those competitions. And let me tell you, those kids are smart, like you would <laughs> not believe, and so poised. And they have these challenges, crazy challenges every year, like design a city that can exist on the moon, design a city that can support 400,000 people in the middle of the desert. And they have to create models and explain their water filtration system. And I mean, just amazing. And they're so poised. Uh, and last year, Bentley established a donor advised fund, uh, which will enable further charitable contributions to a wide variety of STEM efforts around the world. And how important do you think it is to invest in the younger generation rather than just working with your normal clients? I think it's crucial. I think it's crucial because, you know, each year we see fewer and fewer people going into construction. Uh, and in engineering, we have a sustainable number of graduates, but they don't always stay in engineering, even though that was their degree. So unless we invest in the younger people coming up, the talent gap is just going to get wider and wider, and we're really going to have major, major problems uh, creating or maintaining the infrastructure that we need. So you've already touched on my next point earlier, saying to me, one of the big draws for people to come into the construction sector is the opportunity to make a difference to society and deliver better facilities for people, whether that's transport, schools, hospitals, fresh water, managing wastewater to prevent pollution or ensuring energy supplies. But we are now focusing on delivering that in a sustainable, carbon neutral way. Do you think that the journey to carbon net zero before 2050 will drive more people to want to come and work in this industry and real, make a real difference? I hope so. I do think so. I, I really do. You know, I, um, I, I, have a, I have a couple of teenage kids and they are very passionate about the environment and, uh, and, and what kind of mess have you gotten us into, mom? <laughs> It's all your fault. <laughs> but it is my fault. But but they're very, very passionate about it and they want to do everything they can. And uh, you know, they really get genuinely interested in things like wind farms and solar power. And so I do think that that will attract more people to the industry. That's why I think we need to talk about the purpose and the mission, because it's important to people. It's their future as much as it is ours. So back to the technology side of things on the sustainability challenge. How are firms using technology to improve benchmark and advance the carbon efficiency of their work? Are they finding it easy to do or are there more pressures there like we talked about earlier? Yeah, there, there are definitely, I think, expectations from owner operators to be able to provide uh, 
carbon footprint measurements to be able to provide sustainability information over the long term. I think owner-operators and asset managers are are definitely looking at the full life cycle of the asset and want to know, okay, 15 years from now, what will my carbon footprint have been? And so engineering firms are using tools like EC3, which is something we've embedded in the iTwin platform, and other carbon calculators to be able to keep an eye on that number as they go through iterations of their design. And I also think there's more um, scenario planning and optioneering to be able to look at different choices and how that affects the sustainability of a design. But I think it absolutely matters and the tools are out there to measure it and understand its impact before an asset is even built. And similarly, to be able to retrofit existing assets. Do you think we'll see more evolution around the technology when it comes to carbon calculation in the next few years? Oh yeah, for sure. Definitely. But it is challenging to do, isn't it? But I think it's, it's clear the sector's evolving, there's some real challenges and opportunities ahead. And there have been some huge changes since New Civil Engineer was launched in 1972. But I wonder what you think the sector will look like another another 50 years from now, if we can deal with the pressures we've already discussed today and leverage those opportunities. What do you think the infrastructure and construction projects we'll be working on in the 2070s will look like, first of all? And then what kind of technology do you imagine we'll be using? <laughs> So this is a crazy, mind-blowing question. Sorry. Trying to imagine things. I know. I, I don't think you're that sorry. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> but I will say... I, it was actually a... I don't think either, I don't think either of us are going to be here in 50 years' time to actually check whether we're, we've got it right or not. Who knows? No, that is, that is true. But it was a fun question to consider. And I literally thought of 100 different answers, big and small, to what will life be like in 50 years, right? So hopefully none of this is too controversial, but honestly, I think that most infrastructure design will be commoditized. I think there may be those marquee uh, projects like the Shard or, or, or things where you really want to stand out and have something that is exceptionally different looking. But I think that most infrastructure design, wastewater treatment plants, bridges, build, you know, office buildings, if we even have office buildings anymore, uh, schools, things like that, I think most of that design will be commoditized. I think that energy production will be sustainable, uh, whether it's through, you know, wind or solar energy, or whether it's through some of the, the newer technology people are experimenting with, like kinetic energy, which is sidewalks that produce power by the pressure of the footfalls on them. I love those. So I think those are pretty non-controversial and 3D printing, I think, will be ubiquitous in all different types of materials. I don't think any of those are controversial at all. And I think sustainability and using nature in the design will be key to being carbon neutral, right? So we're already seeing experimentation with buildings that have trees that run up the sides of them and green rooftops have been around for a long time. So I think all of that will continue. Uh, and I think Materials that might be new now will be very common in the future, like self-healing concrete and roof tiles that save water uh, and preserve it so that rainwater can be used for drinking water. Uh, I think those things will just be everywhere. They already have solar panels that are see-through and look like glass. So I would expect glass 
air quote glass windows that are actually solar solar panels will be everywhere. So I don't think any of those are too controversial. I think quantum computing is definitely going to have a place here from a technology perspective. Quantum computing is predicted to hit the market in 10 to 15 years, which means it'll actually be usable by by more of us in probably five years after that, right? In 20 years. So things that took months to run will now take, you know, minutes, minutes to hours to run. Um, and I think that means that generative design for even the most complex of infrastructure will be inexpensive. And that means that we'll be able to get the best version depending on the constraints of the environment for whatever we need. I think robots uh, will do most work uh, increasing safety and quality. You know, they've come a long way from robots that can do simple tasks to robots that can walk around and do search and rescue. And why shouldn't they be doing construction? And so that makes it really kind of scary. You could take the bleak side and say, well, machines are taking over the world, but I don't think that's the case. I am, I am the eternal optimist and, <laughs> and those things can't run by themselves, right? So I think there will be high demand for skilled, qualified people who know how to use the systems, who know how to do manage simulations in a quantum computing generative design environment, know how to oversee and manage robots, right? I mean, they're, you know, and validate data. Remember, we talked about data. There's just going to be more and more and more data, but somebody needs to be the mastermind behind how all that data fits together, how we collect the insights, and somebody needs to keep things on schedule. So project managers, you are safe. <laughs> <laughs> so that's your career advice, going to project management. <laughs> No, no, no. Go into running robots, okay. go into automation, go into system control, all of those things and project management. Too. Okay. So do you think um, sustainability and carbon net zero being carbon neutral would just be run of the mill? It's what we do day to day. It won't actually almost be talked about. It always become as normal as health and safety. Yes, I do. That's a really good analogy. That's a great way of putting it. I do think it's table stakes. It will become like health and safety. It's just something we do. Everywhere, globally. In 50 years, it will be globally. It won't be, you know, it won't be depending on the amount of money that you have to invest in terms of developing and less developed nations. I think it will be ubiquitous because it has to be. Do you think we'll actually need roads or will we reach to the point with Back to the Future where we've got flying cars? You know, I don't, I don't know. Um, even if we have flying cars, we're still going to have to have some way to control the traffic, right? But yeah, I do think that that's a possibility. Um, and, and I do think they will be driverless, for sure. I think that. Whether they're on the road or in the air, they will be driver or pilotless. There will be some system of automation. But I think people will need to travel less because we'll all be taking advantage of of all of the technology we have now to connect remotely as well. Yeah, because who could have imagined sort of three years ago that we'd be talking on teams like this? You're in America, I'm in the UK, we were working remotely from home. So things, have, things exactly. have changed dramatically in three years. So it's hard to imagine exactly where we're going to be in 50 years time. But let... who knows, maybe we'll be teleporting by then. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But we'll have to wait and see what happens there. So thanks for joining me today, Claire, and for sharing your knowledge on emerging trends with us. I'm excited about the opportunities ahead, whether that means flying cars or not, who knows. But let's see how the predict <laughs> your predictions for the future pan out. So thank you for listening today and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Engineers Collective. Thank you very much. 
The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. At Bentley, our mission is to provide innovative software and services for the enterprises and professionals who design, build and operate the world's infrastructure, advancing both the global economy and the environment. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash The Engineers Collective.